My conversation today is with author, scholar, and practitioner David Rankin. David has been a major contributor to the communities of occultism, magic, and the Western esoteric traditions, with a list of publications dating back to the 1980s. David has recently released a two-volume work through Hadean Press, entitled The Grimoire Encyclopedia, which has been called a work of unparalleled magical scholarship. To be sure, this endeavor is as historic as it is useful, with over a hundred chapters and eight massive appendices. The work is a staggering presentation of multiple decades of research and experience. David is not only one of the most well-researched authors I have spoken with, he's also one of the most extensively practiced. His insights into the multi-layered discipline of magical evocation are an incredible boon to practitioners of all sectors of magical operation. It was a delight speaking with such an accomplished and incredibly affable practitioner and to glean insights from his wealth of experience. I'm Ike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. start off with uh you know you having recently released the grimoire encyclopedia um i mean if social media and you know being somewhat plugged into the occult communities uh is any indication it's been released to great success so i congratulate you on that you're known for your work in the grimoire tradition um with stephen skinner and your standalone works and things of that nature but what sort of what was the impetus to take on a project of this size? It's been a long time coming, I think. Um, back in 2010, um, a good old friend of mine, uh, Mog Morgan, who I knew from Oxford from the 80s, um, contacted me and said, you're into all this grimoire stuff. I don't really get it. Could you like do me a pricey of like the most important grimoires? So I did a document for him, which was like um, a paragraph each on what I considered at the time the like most important 30 grimoires. So and that was kind of it's like the seed being planted, I think, in a sense. And then as we, you know, as the years went by, more and more people were releasing more and more good works. The scope of what is out there in the last, you know, 10, 15 years has just expanded so much. There's so many good books out there and good people doing the scholarship and the practice and making stuff available. Um, I thought for people who were coming into the grimoires, it could be a bit overwhelming. You know, it's just such a vast, where do you start? And I decided that maybe somebody should do like an overview of the whole the whole tradition, and I thought about those 30 paragraphs I'd written, and it kind of went from there. I started writing chapters, and you know, and as I started on it, I didn't have a set number planned. I created you know my initial plan of how I thought the book would be structured, which changed over the three years that I wrote it, and reached point where I said, okay, 100 is a good number. It's a nice round number. If I don't have a cutoff point, I'll never actually stop and get it out there. And the whole point of this work is to try and 
put this book out there that hopefully people are going to find of value, you know, as a resource so that they can look at the Gumas, see what attracts them, see what they can then go on, you know, like the good books other people have written that I put in the essential reading for every chapter. Because, like I say, there's a lot of people doing good work. You've got, you know, people like, obviously, Joe Peter and Stephen Skinner, but people like Frater Atcher and Dan Harms and Steve Savedow and Al Cummings and, of course, Jake Stratton Kent. And there's so many people who've been doing, you know, great work that I wanted this book to also signpost people to all of the work they've done. So there's a particular grimoire. They can go, oh, yeah, so-and-so's written a book on that. That I, you know, I, I should read that to find out more about this particular grimoire because that's maybe the one I want to work with. Um, and the appendixes as well just kind of snowballed. <laughs> yes, as they do. Um, it's it's interesting. I I recall having uh, several thoughts of you know somebody should do should write a book on this or somebody should put all this stuff together. But I commend you for having uh, the gumption to actually get it done. And I guess you know. T- you've got what now four decades of practice yeah over four decades right so i mean that plus you, the scholarly tack that you specifically take you know the the amount of detail that you've put into um all of the stuff i think a lot of kind of it, it it's sort of that consideration of this work it tends to fly over people's heads sometimes you know the minutia and things like that so it, it probably you know, uh, I, I guess after putting out all the work that you have, it's it, it kind of seemed like a little bit more of a feasible task eventually. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've already got like, I suppose probably a dozen or so books on the grimoires that I had worked on by myself or, you know, Stephen Skinner and I did like half a dozen books together. You know, the whole point when we founded Golden Horde back in 2003 was to put out and make available, you know, rare and inaccessible works. And from, I suppose from that, I just felt it really needed somebody to tackle it. And that panoramic view, you know, it shows the tradition in a much wider, bigger light. And I think people have been looking at it. People have been looking at pieces of it rather than the whole thing. And when you look at the whole thing, suddenly things change. Yeah, and from what I understand, you're you're a um, in terms of the Western magical traditions. I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but you're fairly widely practiced. I mean, you 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 began with more of the Golden Dawn derivative stuff early on, correct? And then you moved moved to uh, to uh, the grimoires. Well, I mean, the first lodge I was in, which was Stella Matutina derived, was did tend to focus a lot on grimoire material, so. I was getting that there. Then I moved moved into like philemic stuff, um, Alexandrian Wicca, uh, but like the grimoires. Uh, grimoires and Kabbalah have kind of always been there in the background or the foreground, depending on what time in my life it was. Um, you know, it, over the years they, they've always been there. So other things have been, I say, satisfied my interest in other areas but yeah the grimoires that's i suppose that is the underlying one that's always there and that's what motivated me to try and take on the task of 
to an extent, you know, codifying the material for people so that they can just go and look at the books and go, wow, okay, so I'm interested in this particular spirit. It turns up in these grimoires. Okay, I'm looking at these grimoires. Okay, this one appeals to me. I'll, you know, I'll maybe work with this. Oh, so-and-so has written a book on this. I'll get that as well. And you know, to open, you know, to just try and open doors and pathways for people, you know, right. to do more practice. Yeah. I, I, um, I have a question for you. That's kind of a big question. Um, you know, some, some people, I, my background, obviously for, for anybody that has listened to this podcast for any length of time, uh, knows that I came from the hermetic order of the golden dawn by way of this sort of strange happenstance. Um, but the grimoire stuff has, has only been, uh, even though, you know, Mathers did, uh, you, you know, uh, um, I would say a, a, deb a debatably a adequate job translating the, uh, the, the, some of the Solomonic stuff, but you know, it, it certainly was there in the early GD stuff, but it's, it's new for me um, in the, in the past year to really begin diving into that stuff. Um, particularly after conversations with Dr. Skinner and, and um, you know, uh, magicians more well-versed in goetic, and magic and the, the grimoire traditions. But one of the questions that I had was, I see this hard line kind of delineated. And on, on one side, and I think it's a product actually of like what you're saying, seeing the systems piecemeal and not having the broad overview. But I see this hard line drawn uh, in some communities of grimoire practitioners where they don't, they won't necessarily consider stuff outside of um, the evocation um, binding and 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 pack, packs with spirits as as magical and you know Dr. Skinner actually he mentions quite famously in in the uh, techniques of Greco Egyptian magic this idea of there being a, a a technique that didn't you know this difference between magic and the mysteries and we're seeing more and more of that you know as these communities sort of just grow they're just expanding at lightning speed right now it feels you know i've been doing this for for almost 20 years now as well and it, it's very different in the last five years or so but um there's this whole kind of you know goetic magic versus uh theurgy so i'm interested to hear your take on that i mean do you consider the more theurgic practices to to contain and an element of magic or do you just kind of exclusively consider the grimoire stuff? Um, absolutely. I mean, and there's elements of theurgy in some of the grimoires. I mean, like say with the overview, if you t there's three main themes running through the grimoires, which is, you know, conjuration, divination, and the simple spell and charm stuff. So straight away, you know, you'll find them in different proportions in each of the grimoires. You immediately go, conjuration is not the only theme there. In a lot of respects, conjuration is kind of the last resort if the other simpler stuff hasn't worked. And for me, magic is not just about ritual. I think that's what sometimes people get hung up on doing rituals all the time. Magic is about how you engage with the world. It's about, you know, the respect you have for... Um, every other living thing and for the dead, for your ancestors, it's very much a way of being. So ritual is a part of that, but it's not all of it. And I think people get hung up on 
I have to do this conjuration, I have to do that conjuration. It's like, why? And actually, do you, you know, a lot of the time, yeah, you really don't. There's simpler ways to do it. Um, you know, there's this description of, in sort of ancient Egyptian stuff, I really like, of uh, one of the oldest descriptions of magic, say, Heka, you know, magic was given to man by Ra to ward off the arrows of fate. And I really like that whole thing, you know, that when when you're doing ritual, you're shifting probabilities of an event happening in your favour. That's normally, whether you're, that event happening is with the assistance of a spirit or just by your own, you know, will, whatever it might be, at the end of the day, that's what you're doing with the magic. And so I'm a great believer in the, the KISS principle, you know, keep it simple. So if you don't need to do big complex stuff, why do it? Um, conjurations, for me, they're like an occasional thing. It's not, and with all the preparation as well that goes in, if you're living a busy life, yeah, you know, okay, planning aside, when it actually comes to doing a conjuration, that's a week out of your life going to be gone. You know, with the purificatory stuff beforehand and right, and pretty much dropping off the map because I'm, a, you know, as I mentioned in the Grimoire Encyclopedia, great believer in the electronic fast and that you are, you know, minimizing external influences that will distract you from that one-pointed focus you want to have for the conjuration. So it's for, for big stuff that you do that. And I think once you are in a situation where you've pacted, then it doesn't necessarily need to be these big conjurations because you've got that relationship then with a spirit and the style of working changes to a a simpler form. Um, but the theurgy side of it, no, I mean, because a lot of people might disagree, but I think that it's also, you know, the, the idea of like the great work. Um, some people feel that's a bit cliche now, but, you know, it's the work of making yourself great, is of realizing your own genius and becoming the best you can be. And through making yourself great, through trying to evolve the species as well, the whole point of life is to, you know, to evolve. And we want to evolve as a species as well, not just as individuals. So magic for me is totally tied up with that. And so the theurgic and the mystical is an essential component of that attitude. I mean, I think it's uh, very important. And if you get wrapped up in the grimoires as an ex isolated tradition, then there are problems that can come with that. Because you look at every tradition through history, none of them, unless they're on some island in the middle of the Pacific or something, existed in isolation. They cross-fertilized with other traditions. You know, now we see cross-fertilization between the grimoires and some of the ATRs, for example, which is really fruitful and productive. But there's also, I think, necessary cross-fertilization from the ceremonial magic of the last 100 years or so. If you're doing grimoire stuff, you should have good mental muscles. You should have been, you know, have all those years of meditation and concentration exercises and other things under your belt to, you know, so that you can be focused, so that you can shut off your internal dialogue. So that if you're the person who's engaging with the spirit, you know that that is the spirit that you're engaging with and you're not just talking to your ego in your head. You know, there's all these other factors that come in. So I think you can't be too much of a purist. You need to, 
be open to being in a a world that is, you know, in a lot of respects without borders. When it comes to magic, really, we don't have the borders there. Um, there's so much cross fertilization, and that I think is by and large a good thing. I mean, I'm not saying that in a, that it might be inappropriate at times to culturally appropriate, but there's a difference between cultural appropriation and seeing something that works and finding if there's other ways of doing that that are appropriate for your tradition. Yeah, so, that's I mean, that's, gone off a bit of a brand there, but no, it's that's excellent. I was just about to say, you know, I, I'd love to hear you say that. Um, it's yeah, to me, they're the, you know, the, the theurgic and the, the goetic are two uses of the same system. The, you know, a lot of it is based in this, this early uh, Hellenistic cosmology. And so there's there's this whole kind of unified terminology, and you're doing the you're you're utilizing spirits, you know, in theurgy. You're calling on the daimones and the planetary intelligences and the planetary spirits. It's the same. It you you know, I mean, even if you look at the work of Martina de Pasquale, you know, with the Elu Cohen, he was using a Solomonic system the phylacteries the magic circles but he was using it you know for theurgy specifically where he was calling in he was you know him and his sort of lay priests that he consecrated were engaged in this this universal or, or at least um terrestrial exorcism you know so but they were using it was all culled from from grimoire traditions and things like that but that that kind of leads me to the next point there's there's this idea that um you know the grimoire traditions as we receive them are and you know in, in some variations of of it they're they're largely judeo christian and and a lot of people are pointing back to things like the technical hermetica you know the the pgm the greek magical papyri and things like that what are what are your thoughts on you know having studied as, as widely as you have what are your thoughts on the the origins quote unquote of these things well i mean i think there's like three main threads going into the grimoires and the sort of the that stuff in the pgm and the greek goes and that side of things is one of them obviously the jewish magic is also another one and then also from the arabic and the arabic stuff is in itself already in a sense preserving some of the lost hellenic material as well as the influence which we haven't really scratched the surface of yet of indian magic and how much of an influence into the grimoires make there may be through the arabic from indian influences mansions of the moon for example comes from Indian astrology via the Greeks into the Arabic into the grimoires. Oh wow! I didn't know that. Yeah. So, um, and the whole idea of the the Armandal as well from the Mandala. There is a you know there are elements there that need to be explored more. I mean, this is something I mentioned I think in the introduction of the uh, the Grimoire Encyclopedia that there's whole areas of study still there to expand. The tradition more which is why i think we're actually living in very exciting times that we have so many people you know doing good work and you know looking at the different areas um but yeah i totally agree with you that the goetic and the theurgic i think they both work and you can work them both without you know they don't have to exclude each other 
It's like I might do one thing with my left hand and one thing with my right hand, but it doesn't mean that I'm only going to use one of those hands. And sometimes I might need both of those hands for something. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's that, there's, I, I you know, you're probably aware, but there's that's this kind of, you know, uh, debate going on between quote unquote camps and you, you, that that kind of, I believe there's there's a there's an academic term for it, right? And I think anthropology and something like that. They they call it the uh, narcissism of small differences, and things like that. So I see a lot of that happening. But I mean, you're, you know, you are somebody who uh, I'm. I'm just glad to to hear you say that. Uh, I think a lot of people will benefit from having heard it. Um, one thing that I actually uh, I was wondering, and I think I spoke to Aaron Leach a little bit about this. Um, what are your opinions on substitutions in the the prescribed materia magica? You know, not everybody is either willing or can easily obtain um, animal parts and things like that. Yeah, um, I've talked a bit again in the in the book and elsewhere about the idea of um, magical momentum. And, you know, when you're doing an operation of the, building up the magical momentum. And I think you can, you know, make substitutions that will work without really having a negative effect on the magical me momentum. I mean, it depends on, you know, you have to be able to justify for it to work. There has to be a, a coherence and a logic to that substitution. And if there is... I don't see a problem with it. Um, I was, you know, magic, again, as I've said before, um, draws on the religion and the technology of the age. And that's why so much of the Grimoire stuff is, you know, essentially, like we said, Judeo-Christian, with that influence as well from Islamic, so Abrahamic. But there, there are those earlier roots coming in from the Greek and the Egyptian, from the, like the earlier influences into the Jew Jewish things like the Macabre tradition and other sources. Um, and I don't think that if they had things available, they would have necessarily used all those ingredients back in the day. You know, you look at some of the French black magic grimoires, for example, and there comes from a time where these people are doing the stuff out in the countryside. So some of the ingredients they're using are things that were very easily available to them and there were a lot of cats around, so and toads and things. So yeah, it's easy you know, to fall over them. Easy to get them and get parts from them. Um, so substitution, I think, if it's you know if there is a logic to it and a coherence, is a, a very very valid to do. Um, this is, I was talking at the weekend at a conference, and I mentioned there the thing I would say in the book that like with burning incense it's the fragrance that attracts the spirits you don't have to have uh, you know a room if you're indoors full of smoke that's causing people to choke or it's going to trigger somebody's asthma or whatever so because it's fragrance there's no reason why you can't use oil burners and you're still getting the fragrance and in fact there, you know you can add other elements in for using the oil burners which might not be present with burning incense so i think that's a perfectly valid substitution and then you would just for example make an appropriate fragrance to the same sort of recipe as an incense and burn that so yeah i think substitution is valid if done 
coherently and logically. Mm-hmm. And do you find that, uh, you know, you mentioned a little earlier, and I've, I've heard other practitioners really lean on this particular uh, idea of forming a relationship with the spirits. And now, do you think a lot of the, maybe I guess you'd consider boilerplate correspondences and attributions, you know, say like things like planetary incenses, you know, are those things that you have found in practice should be adhered to, or is it more of kind of this nuanced thing of finding out what a particular spirit really likes over time to, in order to, 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 to conjure them? I think they're a good starting point. And then once the relationship is there, you, they might, as you say, give you very specific preferences that they have for you know a recipe that you use to conjure them that makes the process a lot simpler you know that's the one that instantly grabs their attention so yeah i think they have their value um but they're the good introduction afterwards you may then find things change Mm, it's like uh like it's like music <laughs> you, you learn your scales and then improvise <laughs> yeah i mean the grimoire's exactly you know learn the system and then when you know the system of a grimoire then you can start to modify but actually know the mechanics of the system and generally it's a case of adding in rather than taking out you know mm. most grimoires they're not complete books they were people were writing down the stuff they wanted to remember other stuff they would just if they knew by heart why would they need to record it? So a lot of those grimoires, it was the key stuff that they wanted to remember. So there's practices which might not be included, but that are good to include, you know, on what you already have in that grimoire, which will add to the momentum and not detract from the um, validity of the practice. So, and I've also heard you talk about, or or I, I may have read it, um, the the role that divination plays in a lot of uh, the grimoire tradition. Uh, is that something that that you incorporate into, into your own practice to a, a greater or lesser extent? Um, occasionally. This is actually something that um, I suppose came more into my um, thoughts about 10 years ago. Um, Joe Lisevsky back then contacted me and we became friends. Um, we used to, for a period of years, we used to like chat every Sunday evening for an hour or two. And he asked me to do uh, a divination for a particular conjuration he wanted to do. You know, Heptameron conjuration. It's no secret that was his, his big thing. <laughs> and I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm not just going to do a tower reading, because he asked for a tower reading. Um, I asked you know, for the details so that I knew exactly which magic circle names and everything he would be doing, the timing, etc. And I created the same magic circle. And I did the tower reading in the magic circle after having done like prayers to the particular archangel he was going to invoke me. So... I quite closely reproduced a lot of the details of the ceremony he was going to do as the fo- and then fo- to focus in on the reading to give it more 
a certain more focus on that to give a better reading. You know, I was like trying to put the magical momentum into that tarot reading so that I could give him the best reading possible. Um, and, you know, several things were pointed out as things that were likely to be obstacles, which he was then able when they happened in his you know day-to-day life to deal with and that they didn't interfere with. And it worked really well. Um, so that was me making the divination more complex than I normally would. So it was more, like I said, it was a grimoire tarot reading. Uh, and that made me appreciate that Really, if you're doing a big operation, getting some insights beforehand is a good thing. You know, the the fact that those potential pitfalls that I saw and was able to relay to him, which he was then able to avoid, which otherwise might have interfered with the success of his conjuration, um, made me appreciate that, yeah, divination, if you're going to do a conjuration, I think, is a good thing to do. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's. I tend to do stuff for for all kinds of operations. I will of any significance. I'll, I'll appeal to tarot is obviously my also my preferred method. But um, it's interesting. I love the idea that you did it in. You recreated the circle, which that's a really cool uh, idea. Actually, that's um, something that I've never done. Although we something of interest to me is the fact that. You know, particularly in the system espoused by the 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 Hermetic Order, the Golden Dawn. Anytime you do a tarot reading, you're doing a ritual tarot reading. You know, you're not you're not just setting up your your LBRP and then you know setting up shop in the corner of a cafe or something like that. It's it's more so you're there are specific spirits. I would say it's a, a, a hierarchy that you're invoking, and I found actually as usage of this particular method progresses that the 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 tarot cards it's it's very difficult to to articulate this but so what i'll the only thing i can really say is that they seem to have a personality you know it seems to be they almost have a spirit in them kind of speaking back to me after this you know doing this particular type of invocatory uh uh tarot work Absolutely, my I, I still have the same Poff deck I had. I bought when I was eighteen, so that I've been using that deck for forty years, and I definitely feel that the cards have a spirit, you know, do have a distinct spirit to them, and you know, very unique personalities. Like there's, you know, I'll draw certain cards, and it won't say in your books on tarot this card means this, but I know if I draw it, it flipping well does. Because that's what I've learned over forty years of working with it. That or or this in combination with this, okay, that's something that I need to watch out for. Mm-hmm. I definitely feel like they do. Um, and like I say, if you were doing them using them in that more heavily invocatory ritual way, yeah, I, I definitely feel they draw. You know, the essence permeates them, and and you know, image magic it was a, is a hugely significant part of the grimoires you know, you you think of all of the seals and sigils yeah. all that stuff what was called astral magic back then as referring to the heavens and the influence of the heavens here not 
the idea of the astral plane and astral projection stuff that it is now. That's not, you know, what astral magic meant centuries back. So, yeah, I think they do become a powerful magical tool um, which you have a relationship with. <laughs> In the same way that you have a relationship with a spirit, I think over a period of time you have a relationship with your tarot deck. Um, it does become like a friend that you engage with and that is also not afraid to give you a smack across the face and say, no, nope, that's a dumb idea. You don't want to do that, mate. <laughs> so you're somebody who's been active in the occult and esoteric communities, as we mentioned, for, for quite some time now. You've been very influential in uh, in various sectors of those communities as well. As of recently, I guess where you stand today, how have you seen it change most impactfully? I think for me, one of the things I've seen, I mean, the rise of the grimoires, but not just the grimoires, but folk magic. Um, I think people are working far more with spirits now than they did, say, in the 80s or the 90s. Um, I'm also happy to see that there is um, more respect for the dead and for ancestors and working with the spirits of the dead because... Um, you know, Crowley kind of had this attitude, you know, spiritualism is akin to necromancy and had a, seemed to have a real issue with this, which I think permeated the Western mystery tradition so that there's been almost like an aversion to working with the dead very much, you know, or you'll get pagans who honour the dead once a year at Samhain, ooh, and not, not for the rest of the year. But, you know, I came up with a saying that, you know, any living tradition honours its dead. And I love that. I think that is something that has come in a lot more. I think a lot of this stuff has come through cross-fertilisation from the ATRs, you know, from things like Santeria and Imbanda and other traditions like that. that have, they've reminded people of the things that are important. And particularly... You know, the spirit work, the respect for spirits, the respect for the dead, um, and the sacredness of the life that you're living. So, yeah, I think those are the big sort of, what I'd say, the positive changes that I've seen in the last 20 years or so. Yeah, there's definitely been an explosion. Um, I've not been around as long, but... Uh... Yeah, it's it's been kind of jarring to me uh, a little bit in a good way, right? I mean, I have a I have a YouTube channel and a podcast, so it's it's working out. But uh, but you know, um, to to see more material available for people starting out, there's a tremendous amount of confusion. Like you're saying, you know, the these ideas of astral magic and these ideas of necromancy and and things like that. I mean, it's you know even my opinions in the in the short period of time i've been doing the this podcast just under a year now have changed from speaking to people like yourself just cuz you know of of more perspectives and more information um but you know th i think the key is is the quality of the information you're getting right the sources i think that's super important um i mean let's just say for somebody who's listening to this podcast right now you know uh and 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 is getting started i mean do you have like two or three main things that maybe you wish somebody had told you when you were starting out or or that you'd recommend to people nowadays um heading down this path 
Um, I think heading down any magical path, the world has changed a lot since I started. Um, don't put societal norms onto your magical path. Um, we live in a quick fix, instant gratification society now. That does not gel with a magical path. You need to put in the work. You need the discipline and the persistence and the passion to get somewhere in magic. It's not a quick fix. It is you know, years of dedication, doing daily stuff, developing your, your mental muscles, um, your strength of will, um, being true to your word and you know, never breaking a promise, it, that side of things. So I think what I would say to people is be prepared that magic is, if you're starting now, it's a lot of work. It changes you. Because even if you go in with slightly grey or dubious intentions, I think the longer you practice magic, the more ethical it makes you. If you are actually practicing magic and not paying lip service to it, the more ethical you become in that the more you see the need to um, serve the world and to express compassion. So... For me, yeah, it's be aware that it will change you and it is a lot of hard work. But that it's also like incredibly um, rewarding, I think, the magical path. It opens you up to worlds that you'd never see. I mean, we now have incredible CGI. We have, you know, like films that have all these amazing images and stuff. But that can't even begin to compare to the first time that you actually have an encounter with a spirit and have that certainty of the reality of it. it you know, it shakes your universe. That first moment that, yes, it is all real and I can do this gives you that bedrock to sort of go forward and really progress in magic. It, it you know, becomes certainty, not faith. And... Once you have that moment, then they're really there's no going back, and you can tell with people if they've had that experience because it just shows in the way they are and how they talk about things and express themselves. Mm. That's great advice. Um, one of the uh, one of my favorite things that you mentioned, and that you know I've just kind of uh, observed since the the grim the grimoire encyclopedia has come out is the fact that you are listing recommended reading. I think that that's excellent, not only as a resource for people who are trying to um, find their way uh, to credible information about specific things, but it's also highlighting uh, other authors and other practitioners particularly, which is really cool. Um, and I'm curious you know, I know how these things go, especially if you have like a, a, a scholarly thing. You're you're more privy sometimes to to uh, I would say translation or 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 scholarly works that uh, are 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 kind of happening at the moment, but won't hit the public 
uh, for a while. But I'm interested to know if there are any newer authors uh, working in the grimoire tradition or any other like maybe translations of manuscripts that you know about that are really exciting to you right now. So, yeah, there's some really exciting things happening with people who aren't new, but are like hitting a resonance with the work they're doing. You know, like, I mean, Frater Atcher's been around a long time, but in Goetic Atavisms, it's like really striking a chord for a lot of people and, you know, making people sit up and take notice. Um, there's people like my magical brother, Steve Savedow, you know, He's one of the pioneers of the Grimoire revival, and he's producing material that's like really exciting and fresh. His new book, The Hidden and True Pneumatology, translated from the German, it's a really interesting text. It's a lot of stuff in there that, again, you're like, whoa. I mean, for example, there's a, a Hecate prayer in it, which immediately makes you stand up and take notice. Um, really interesting other material, discussions of spirits, Discussion with a spirit. There's a sort of recording of this conjuration that a monk did of one of the Olympic spirits and what the Olympic spirit said to him. So that's the sort of thing you don't see recorded very often. That's really interesting. Um, the work of Mihai Vatajaru is always really good. You know, he's a really good scholar. Um, his blog is fantastic resource, and uh, he gets enough attention or credit for the amazing work that he's doing. Um, Andrew Philip Smith recently had pages from a Welsh cunning man's book come out with translated stuff from Welsh into English. And again, there's like the Welsh aspects of the Grimoire tradition has been pretty much ignored. So I find it pretty exciting that we've got somebody translating material from Welsh, which is not an easy language, into English. And then there's this whole wave of women writing about the Grimoires and related material which kind of puts paid to that old notion of the grimoire tradition being you know, a very male thing. It isn't. And, you know, it's being demonstrated by people like Alison Tchaikovsky, um, Sarah Mastros. She's got a new book coming out, Sorcerer of Solomon, which I've seen, you know, before it goes to print. It's a really good standalone book on working with the Solomonic Pentacles. And that's a really nice work. And other people like um, Katerina Petrovich, Sasha Ravich, um, sorry, Ravich, uh, Marja Merling, Winter Armada, I've seen some of her forthcoming Codex of Beelzebub, and that's going to be a must-have book. You know, So there's a lot of people producing really interesting work, and I'm lucky in that I quite often get to see stuff before it goes to print, and that's a privilege I never take for granted. You know, I feel quite honoured that, you know, people will say, "Can you know, have a look at this," and I get to see you know, books before they go to print. At sometimes, you know, for an endorsement or for comments, and I'm very grateful for that because it does mean you get to see stuff that's really fresh and you know coming out, and that you can see, "Oh, this is going to have an impact on you know what people think and practice." So there's a lot of lot of exciting good stuff coming. I wanted to ask you about practical components of the grimoire tradition and the, some of the things that you've included in the practical section of the grimoire encyclopedia, things like, you know, casting the magical circle. Yeah, that's, again, it's the case, I think, a lot that 
things are really obvious when you've been doing them, but not so obvious to people who haven't done them yet. Once you see it done, it's like, oh, yeah, of course. But, you know, it's like the thing of you see in a lot of the conjurations that um, often, like the net divine names are highlighted. They'll be like in a, a bold black or they'll be in red, which indicates that you're supposed to vibrate those names. But if no one tells you that, you don't know. You know, there's more emphasis on those divine names or the names of the spirits. Or that any time there's a cross that you make the sign of the cross. Again, once you know, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But if you don't know, until you see or you see someone do it, because people don't tend to write about this. That's why I tried to put stuff like that into the Grimoire Encyclopedia. And the magic circle, you know, it's not just the drawing of the circle, which in itself can be quite an operation. It's the activation of the circle once it's drawn. And here we get that whole component of force and form. You know, the, the circle is the form, but you activate it with magical force. You, you, know, the, you have the tip of the sword that you touch the outer rim of the circle with, and as you're touching it, you know, you're seeing like the white fire of your will activating the outside of the circle. Every pentagram or other symbol you trace with the tip of the sword, every divine name or name of spirit, you know, working around sort of usually east to east, as you trace it with the tip of the sword, you're intoning those names. You know, you're putting the power in that actually gets that circle activated. So it's not just an inert image on the floor. It has, it is that powerful protection that you have empowered. And that involves some species of visualization, correct? Absolutely. You know, you ask, um, the way I was taught is that it's white fire is what you see um, being done. And that the other people, assuming you're working with more than one, just yourself, and there's other people there, are also seeing it and putting their energy into it as well. They're all visualizing that happen um and that's something that is not really discussed that like we said earlier concentration aspect of that you have developed your concentration powers so that you can have that focus and put that energy into that part of the the practice yeah and and it, it's interesting uh also you're talking about activating certain materia magica or or um sigils names things like that they they kind of embody at that point a, a somewhat of a talismatic nature right you, you're, you're kind of that's that's part of i really like the way you put it the the, the force and form com, force and form components of that yeah it's very much I mean, any ritual it's at any point it's the balance of force and form and that varies from time to time but there's always both, you know, you need form without force is inert and force without form is incoherent. It doesn't have, so there always has to be that balance. And people, if you're just saying the words without doing anything else, it's at the risk of becoming theatre rather than practice. Um, there has to be that power. I mean, things like the preparatory prayers and all the other stuff, you know, you infuse yourself, you get into that energized 
ecstatic state when you do a conjuration. It, you know, it's not just a sort of like boring, monotonous reading in this sort of tone. <laughs> you you get really like <laughs> when you're doing a conjuration. You know, um, yeah. So the, the, you really feel that power flowing, and you see that power flowing when you're doing it. And really? that's why it can take a lot of a lot out of you. And why it's good to rest up usually at least the day after conjuration, because you know, off times it can take a number of recitations. You know, it's not going to just happen in five minutes. You might have to repeat the conjuration a number of times. And you know, two or three hours is not uncommon for conjurations if you're going for one of the biggies. And that takes a lot of energy out of you. Yeah. Wow. That's that's excellent actually to know. But um I uh is is there anything else that, that you wanted to um uh talk about or uh because I, I feel like I'm really glad we got what we just did in because this that stuff is really, really interesting. And of course, you know, to some degree of it's been my experience uh on these podcasts now doing them for almost a year. It's uh the best conversations happen after I click the recording off. You know? <laughs> so I appreciate that. I think something else talking about the whole idea of um, force and form and the magical momentum is how important it is to really get that magical momentum moving before you get to the actual day of the conjuration, you know, in that sort of week, of build up with, you know, where you are focusing yourself, you know, by the things that you abstain from, you know, like the sort of the meat, alcohol, tobacco, all the things like that, not swearing so that there's no impurity in the voice because you're going to be uttering sacred names, um, be abstaining from social media and television and things so there's no distraction. All of that aspect of the preparation is also very important. If you go in, if like, you know, you just decide in the morning, oh, I'm going to do a conjuration this evening, and you haven't had all of that time, of, you know, the bathing, the other, the purificatory stuff, doing, for, say, for example, you might do the penitential psalms on the days leading up to it, um, the confession on the, the morning of. Um, without those sort of aspects to it, you greatly reduce your chance of success. So, the preparation aspect is as important as the conjuration itself. Um, you know, really want to sort of highlight that it's not just a casual thing. It's a big deal. If you're doing conjurations, they take a lot of time and energy to do if you want to have a good chance of success. And then with the best will in the world, sometimes even if you've done everything right, it doesn't always go according to plan. Um, but that that's where the perseverance comes in. If it didn't, then you have to try again. And I think for people particularly coming in, it's great to hear podcasts that do talk about the books, but if you can actually, you know, pass on some handy like hints and tips to people, because most people are working in isolation, you know, and they, they see stuff and you know, the quality of material online can be so variable mm. that if, if they've got someone whose work they enjoy, if they can then hear with that person's first-hand experience, then that makes, I think, life more interesting. 
Um, I, I appreciate the scholarly work. I think that's important. And a lot of you guys, particularly in the grimoire tradition, really are doing the scholarly work, but you're also practitioners. So that's, it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, there's some great academics doing things, but their stuff is very dry and mm. often because it's academic, it's within like this narrow band and they don't look at it within a wider perspective. And they certainly don't look at it from the point of view of practice. So they like miss, can miss like nuances or not actually understand necessarily the importance of what material they've got there. Um, right. Right. And from that point of view, it's great they're supplying the text, but you know, we want the text and what you do with them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I was rereading um I'm in the process of putting this manuscript together. So I was going through all my resources and I was reading Dr. Skinner's techniques of Greco-Egyptian magic again yesterday. And he, uh, I, I forgot that he, he very eloquently sums things up with analogies sometimes. Um, I think he put, he put in the, in the, one of the introductory chapters, um, it'd be like somebody studying radios who didn't believe in radio waves. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> I was like, that's a really good way of putting that. <laughs> I think I think it's great with analogies. I mean, one of mine is like um, a quite well-known author at one point commented about this series of conjurations in the Goetia and how it should only require one to get the attention of spirit, otherwise your will is failing. But that completely misses the point. Um, I, I liken it more to somebody calling you on the phone on a landline. Mm-hmm. Unless you are sitting next to the phone... You're not going to answer it on the first ring. You've got to get from wherever you are in the house to the phone to pick it up. And each ring on that phone is like you doing a conjuration and then another conjuration. You know, it's like when you hear a phone ring, the insistence of it to answer it builds up. In the same way with conjurations, you build up the power of it until it's like, all right, I'm coming for bloody hell, for goodness sake. (laughs) That's another great analogy. Yeah, that's great. I might stick that in the podcast somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um yeah you know unless you're incredibly lucky with the conjuration it is going to take time it's not just going to happen in the first five minutes it does require that build up of energy and attracting let's say the attention of that to the spirit you know that spirit might be busy doing its own thing <laughs> that's why they have like often have like their legions of followers i'll send one of my people to go and deal with this because i'm busy doing something else frankly yeah. much more so the secret life of spirits we don't know what they're doing when you know when they're off in their realms you know we can only hazard wild guesses i did a a talk in cardiff at the conference there last sunday it's gone i made a comment said we know when you do your calling the watchtowers and summoning the lords and the watchtowers said i hope you don't think they actually turn up (laughs) because then what you're doing is you are creating a ward in their name. You draw your pentagram and say, I summoned stone, call you up to garden with a strike. So they're not actually turning up and being there. You're just using the power of their name as the rulers of those directions, you know, to empower your thing. Don't think that they're actually turning up because that otherwise you think every full moon, they're going to be, whose circle are we going to go to? <laughs> yeah. You see people in your audience going, Oh Yeah. <laughs> when you're calling up a spirit it takes a lot more than just a few words to get them to turn up you've got to put a lot more energy in so that's like just creating a ward in their name 
and there actually seemed to be a few people nodding along as the penny dropped. Yeah. <laughs> that's excellent. That's good insight. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, a little bit a little bit more of the realization that I that I I, I guess I had in, in just talking to you about it. You know, obviously I'm doing things more like um I guess you would call it the animation of a Yetzeratic image or a telismatic image where I'm using the, the letters of the name to create uh, a, a telismatic, you know, image that I project into the room um, and, and then animate it with some species of that force. But it's, you know... Um, there was a good book by A.C. Highfield in the 80s on the whole thing of creating with the telismatic imagery, you know, creating the form using the telismatic imagery of the letters. I remember that was there. I can't remember the title of the book, but he did a couple of good books in the eighties that I think kind of been lost to posterity. Which is a shame because they were good, like solid magical technique books. So, do you do you have any other projects in the works at the moment? Uh, anything? I know you know this was probably somewhat of a massive labor for you, but uh, you, I, I know how it goes with with a lot of these. In, in this community, you know, we, we dedicate ourselves to these things and uh, they just take on sometimes lives of their own. So is there anything that you're, you, any next project you're hopping to or? Um, I am working on one, but I, I keep that under wraps until it's done, which is a, a smaller project. <laughs> and after that, I'll be working on volume three of the Grimoire Encyclopedia. <laughs> wow, volume three! Wow, excellent. So this is going to be an uh, uh, this is an ongoing project for you. Oh yeah, it's going to be like my life's work, really. You know, it's, I mean, it's like my magnum opus. You know, there's I've got you know plans for what I want in volume three um, to expand the material further. Great. Um, so where can people check you out on the, on the internet? Um, do you have a website? I know you have a website. But <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, at the moment, I'm actually working on giving the website an overhaul. So at some point in, at some point, hopefully this year, it will go out with like more material on, like I want to put on, um, articles, for example, that I've put into, um, anthologies and things that aren't necessarily in print anymore that people might not have access to and just, try and put some more material out there that people might find of interest and other bits and pieces like that on the website. Yeah. You know, davidrankin.com, very original name, um, <laughs> but Excellent. easy to find. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I appreciate you uh, taking time out of your day to, to speak with me and uh, I'm looking forward to everything else that you've got in the works. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.